0: Well, everyone in the church knows that we are followers of Christ who are living in an antichrist world. We get that. There are only two different kinds of people on the planet. I've alluded to this before those living for Christ and those who are living against Him. And this is not an oversimplification, rather, this is a reality, and we see this distinction even more clearly as we cultivate our biblical view, our worldview, don't we? We really do. It's common in our day to see social, scientific, political, even religious agendas that stand in direct opposition to Jesus Christ and His authority over mankind, His authority as Creator, His authority as Sovereign. His authority as judge is continually met with resistance. It is growing increasingly more common for some of these parties of opposition to join forces to express their disdain for Christ. Saw this just recently on the news too as one of the um, atheist groups was attacking a school because students were meeting early before school even started to have a Bible study, right? Right? But it was on uh, state property. It was on public uh, funded property. And so the group retaliated and they resisted them doing that. Even though it wasn't during school hours, they just uh, joined with other state forces too to resist and express their disdain for Christ. And this is nothing new. And such was the case for the Pharisees and the Herodians in Mark chapter 12. And I invite you to turn there. There could hardly be two groups with more opposing outlooks. The Pharisees represented the religious pride of Israel, whereas the Herodians had sold themselves out to the Romans and were notorious for making political concessions with their suppressors. The Pharisees represented conservative Judaism while the Herodians were liberal and compromised when it came to their convictions. In in modern political terms, we could view the Pharisees as the conservative right-wingers and the Herodians as the liberal left-wingers. The Pharisees represented resistance to Rome, while the Herodians represented accommodation. But there was one mutual thing that cemented them together, and it was their hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. Their disdain for who He was. The Pharisees despised Him because He was disrupting their religious agenda. And the Herodians despised Him because He threatened their political arrangement. As a result, they both wanted Christ done away with. In the context of Mark chapter 12, the plot thickens as Christ's authority Continues to be challenged from every conceivable angle in various combinations of opposition. It is Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life, and he has angered the Jewish Sanhedrin. They're angered because this massive crowd keeps following him and he has tremendous influence. They're angry because he's driven out the merchants from the temple who were helping to fill their pockets. They're also infuriated because Jesus is preaching the gospel to huge crowds on their temple mount and declaring that He is the Messiah, the Savior and Redeemer of Israel. Jesus has is not submitted to their self-appointed authority. He has not asked permission to do the things that He's doing. He's not even an authorized rabbi in their estimation. In addition to all this, he just told the parable of the wicked vine growers and quoted a few messianic verses letting the Jewish leaders know that the parable and the scriptures he spoke were against them. What will the Pharisees plot next? Why do they conspire with the Herodians again to champion their cause? Jesus is going to end this passage by saying, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What principles or takeaways from this account will it have for us when it comes to our allegiance to Christ? Let's dig out some answers and study Mark twelve, thirteen to seventeen, and we'll begin by reading it. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful. And defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring a denarius denarius to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study. Gracious God and Father, we consider it a tremendous privilege to rally around your word again we don't ask that you would simply change us or alter us father we come asking that you would transform us transform our understanding help us to see your authority help us to recognize that your allegiance is what the gospel has called us to help us to consider where we're at and as it relates to your lordship and your authority in our lives. We do want to be changed. We do want to be transformed. And we know that you have taught us many lessons through the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel and their rejection of Christ and his authority. May this be no different today. Would you continue to teach us so that it has a radical impact and truly does transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message? Pay taxes and worship God. And this is based off the final two commands that we see in verse 17. The outline's in your notes, which includes three guiding principles so that your allegiance to Christ's authority will honor the Lord first as well as any governing authorities. Three guiding principles so that your allegiance to Christ's authority will honor the Lord first, as well as any governing authorities. If there's been one guiding principle, this has been this ongoing principle that we have learned at the expense of the Pharisees and leaders of Israel throughout the study of Mark, it is not to practice. Their hypocrisy, which is no different in this account. And it's actually going to serve as our first principle. Don't practice hypocrisy. Look again at verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. The first thing that we see is that hypocrites consistently conspire against the truth. They here represents the Sanhedrin which if you rewind the tape, it takes us all the way back to Mark 11.27. And each of the stories and from Mark 11.27 all the way through the entire chapter 12 is set against the backdrop of the Sanhedrin's conspiracies. The San. Sanhedrin consisted of three major groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Scribes. And you may recall the last time we talked about the Sanhedrin, we we mentioned specifically chief priests and elders. And it was common for uh, Sadducees to be chief priests and elders. But the the three major groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, and, and Scribes, beginning with the story, each of these groups conspires against Jesus in this chapter. The Pharisees on the question of taxation, which we're viewing today. Then in our next section, the Sadducees are going to question him on the resurrection. And the scribes on the question of scriptural interpretation in verses 28 through 44. We already noted the Pharisees and the Herodians' willingness to conspire together against the truth despite their differences. And if you're like me, then it's easy for us to stand back and look at these guys and say, I'm so grateful that I'm not like them. I, I would never conspire against the truth or the Lord's authority in my life. But is that true? Is that true? The truth is, we do conspire. We do. And we do resist the truth in our hearts all the time. Perhaps you may not believe you're a conspirator. That sounds like a a pretty strong term. But allow me just to ask just a few probing questions. Are there truths in the Word of God that you have turned a blind eye to or made your ears deaf toward? Truths that you've ignored with a pious smile on your face? And if another believer came to you and exhorted you to start obeying the truths you profess to believe in, would you become angry? Or would you resist their counsel? Our hearts are deceptively wicked. My heart is deceptively wicked. And it conspires against the truth in Christ's authority. I don't want to hear about my sin. I don't. The truth be told, the flesh, it rises up against the work of the Spirit, and we'd rather just keep it right off, in the, off to the side somewhere. And I imagine I'm not alone. When someone in your care group expresses concern about your lack of commitment to the group, for example. Let's just use that as an example. How would your heart respond What happens if they propose that you needed greater accountability in your life? Does your heart conspire against the truth or does it confess the need for more of it? Again, if we're honest with ourselves, our flesh can resist such counsel. And we can even start to think things in our mind. When somebody suggests, well, hey, have you been in the Word? Or I noticed you didn't contribute too much to the Roman study. Did the study go okay for you? What? We we did they just ask me that? Really? Don't they know I'm the pastor? (laughs) No, seriously. Who, Who are you to tell me that I I needed to be doing my study in Romans? Who are you to tell me that I need to be sharing my faith? Who are you to tell me I must give, serve, and live like a Christian? are you? Let me tell you who they are. They're our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we're called to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. They stand in every way as disciples, and to some degrees as as intermediaries between us and the Lord to help us and to amplify his voice as they're led by the Spirit, and to speak counsel into our lives. They help us to see our blind spots, They help us to see the things that we cannot see. We show up and we're we're experiencing despondency or depression. And they can identify quickly patterns that they see in our life that could be contributing to that. And so they're there so that those things can be seen and they can help us grow. We need each other and to hold each other accountable. And this is what the Lord has for us. And it tests whether our allegiance is truly to the King as we submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Hypocrites conspire against the truth. The alliance of the Pharisees and the Herodians, you may recall, it began all the way back in Mark 3.6, where after Jesus had uh, performed a healing on the Sabbath and suggested that he was even Lord of the Sabbath, it said immediately the Herodians and the Pharisees plotted together as to how they might destroy him. And here verse 13 says, they were sent in order to trap Jesus in a statement. The word translated trap was often used to refer to catching an animal in a snare or hooking a fish. The use of the word implies deceit and treachery. And if you've ever gone fishing before or if you've ever set a mouse trap, you know you just don't put out the trap by itself or throw an empty hook into the water, do you? Right? You have to do something. You have to bait it, right? You have to put something on that's going to entice whatever it is that you're trying to catch to take a bite. And this is exactly what they do. And verse fourteen functions as the bait. They came and said to him, "Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth." And I didn't. Jesus, you know, he he didn't respond sinfully ever in the flesh. But I, I think our immediate response would be, well, then why aren't you listening? Right? And and that was the temptation of my heart, just even after they said this. Here we see that hypocrites give Jesus lip service. The insincerity of the questioners is seen further in the flattery they employed. All the things they said were true, but their motive was insincere. They were willing to concede some virtues to Jesus in order to get him to relax and put his guard down and ruin him at a later point. The Pharisees understood the proverbial truth where words are many, transgressions are unavoidable. And they learned this through their interactions with people. They saw this reality. In fact, that's an intriguing exercise that you can do with somebody sometime. Go ahead and just engage in conversation like you normally would and try to identify the first time that you sin in your speech. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. And honestly, this is what they figured they could do if they just kept Jesus talking, that just like everyone else, eventually he would say something that could be used against them. The problem is that they're speaking to the sinless Savior And it goes without saying, but as believers, we should speak honestly and sincerely. We shouldn't share words that aren't true or that manipulate a person or a situation just so that we get what we want. It is hypocritical if the compliments or words of edification that we use don't come or don't reflect the motive of our hearts. And this is how Jesus defined hypocrisy, and it's a lesson that we learned back in Mark 7 when Jesus rebuked the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees, saying, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. The principle he would have us take away is To let the words of our mouths, let the words of our lips match the motive of the heart. Match the motivations and the reasons why we're saying the things that we're saying. And all this so we don't practice hypocrisy. Hypocrites conspire against the truth. Hypocrites give Jesus lip service. Hypocrites put God to the test. Look again at the end of verse 14 and the beginning of 15 as they now ask Jesus their loaded question, attempting to discredit him and his ministry. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? If there's one thing, my friends, that should cause us to tremble, it is putting the Lord to the test. It immediately warrants God's judgment of unbelievers. And when it comes to us as believers, it warrants great chastisement. Testing God is satanic. And you may recall who it was that first tested Jesus before his earthly ministry even began, right? Satan himself, all the way back in Mark 1.13. Perhaps if the leaders of Israel had witnessed this, they would see just how pathetic their feeble attempts were going to be. But Jesus was alone in that instance. As a result, we see them putting the Lord to the test repeatedly throughout the Gospel accounts. And this is a different word than trap used in verse 13. And it carries the tone of tempting so that they could find fault or cause others to doubt him. The last time we see its use was in Mark 8, 11, where it says the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The goal was to invalidate, to discredit, with a counterpunch, an attempt to do what Jesus had just done to them back in Mark 11, uh, 19, or excuse me, 29 through 32. Jesus just made the leaders, the, the, the delegation sent from the Sanhedrin, look absolutely foolish, and he discredited their leadership by asking them a question that they could not answer. And it left them spiritually gridlocked. Now they think they have Jesus boxed in with this poll tax question. If Jesus advised payment, he's going to lose popularity and influence with the people. If he advised against payment, he would surely be arrested by the Roman authorities. All this leads us to our second and third guiding principles in our outline. Principle number one, don't practice hypocrisy. Principle number two, give the government your taxes. Look at the end of verse 15. Jesus said, Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Let's stop there for a moment. It was Roman law that all Jews paid an annual poll tax. A denarius was equivalent to one day's wage. And the image on the denarius at this time was that of Caesar Tiberius, emperor of Rome. And it would have looked something like this. I went online and found a picture for you so that we could pull it up and, and, and take a peek. The coins of Tiberius were inscribed Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And if you, could, uh, if you know Latin, you might be able to make sense out of that on the left-hand side. I don't, but hats off to you if you do. On the other side, in some of the coins, not all of them, had an image of Tiberius' mother, Livia, portrayed as a goddess of peace with the inscription, High Priest, pictured on the right with the, with the Latin phrase, Maxim Pontif. Okay? In the Catholic Church, the Pope is often referred to as the Pontiff. Right? Considered the, the, the chief and high priest of the church. And this was given to Livia, Tiberius' Tiberius's mother. I'm going to say more about the, the image in a moment. But the Jews hated Roman oppression. And the annual poll tax was just one form of it. They were fed up with having their hard-earned money taken away from them by greedy tax collectors who often took more from them than they really owed. And being in love with money and the pleasures of money that could be afforded, to take their money was to strike against one of their most precious idols. According to the historian Josephus, in 6 AD, a man named Judas of Galilee, together with a Pharisee named Siduc, declared that paying taxes to Rome was treasonous to the one true God. Many who loved their money loved these words and did everything they could not to pay taxes. Many even died in the attempt. Josephus says the words of Judas of Galilee so stuck into the minds of the Jews that it was one of the main reasons they rebelled against Rome in 70 AD, which led to the burning of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. Think about that for a moment. Their zeal and their passion to keep their money at all costs led to the temple being burned with fire. Luke 16, 14 says, The Pharisees were lovers of money. And by their example, they had taught the people to love money as well. Therefore, paying taxes to Rome was akin to blaspheming their their idol, money. They thought their question was brilliant. If Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, then they'll hand him over to Rome and he'll be considered an insurrectionist. If he says, yes, you should pay taxes, then instantly Jesus loses popularity with the people who were anticipating that when their Messiah came onto this, the scene, that he was going to take care of this whole tax situation and they were no longer going to have to pay taxes to, to another In other words, there was no right answer. Either way, Jesus would lose. So Jesus asks them for a denarius. He takes it in his hand and he's thumbing it, contemplating his calculated answer to them. Question for you What do you think, Jesus? was thinking as he thumbed that denarius in his hand and thought about his answer. Perhaps he was thinking about Judas Iscariot who was going to betray him in less than 48 hours from this point in time for 30 shekels of silver due to his love for money. Perhaps he was thinking about Judas of Galilee and the, the coming revolt of the Jewish people against the Romans because of their love for money that was ultimately going to lead to the temple being completely destroyed. How ironic that both men were named Judas, eh? My Canadian A just came out from nowhere. Okay? Okay. Perhaps our Lord was thinking about earlier teaching in Matthew six twenty four when He said, "No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other." You cannot serve God and wealth. Oh, may that fall into our ears. May we hear that clearly. Let me say it again for us here at church. You cannot serve God and wealth. It won't work. It doesn't work. Maybe he thought of God's word that would be recorded. For the last days, that says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What comes to mind when you think about money? Do the warning signs in God's Word cause you to check your heart regularly to make sure that it is not master over your life? Interestingly, in this account, Jesus provides an illustration that can help us see if money is impacting our heart in a negative fashion. He asks whose image is on the coin? By asking this question, Jesus subtly reminds the experts of the law who were listening to him that believers are created in God's image, not Caesar's. In fact, Caesar is no God. He was merely a worldling living for the world, money, fame, and power. And those who will follow him will become just like him and the idols that they serve We see a clear picture, graphic picture of this for us in Psalm 115. Believers, when they walk in faithfulness to God, promote God's image. They will promote a godly image, not a worldly one. You know that your heart could be in trouble and money could be your master when you're more concerned about a worldly image than you are about a godly one. It's true. This is especially dangerous for us. As the hooks of commercialism and materialism try to sink into our flesh day after day, living in one of the wealthiest states and the wealthiest counties in the United States. The threat is always there. And let us keep our hearts free from the love of money by regularly reminding ourselves of the warnings about it in God's word. Another indication of being consumed by money is our response to paying taxes. What comes to mind when you think about paying taxes? If <laughs> I can ask that question. Does it make you angry? Or do you pay them begrudgingly? It shouldn't. Can I shepherd you for a moment? It shouldn't. After all, God's word commands us to pay our taxes and to submit to the governing authorities. In Romans 13, here's what Romans 13, 1 and 2 says. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves or judgment. And then if you look all the way down into verse 6 of chapter 13 in Romans, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. It's part of our testimonies as believers to pay our taxes faithfully. One commentator wrote, Believers must never cheat on their taxes. One conscious, conscience-stricken taxpayer wrote the IRS, Dear sir, my conscience bothered me. Here is the $175 which I owe in back taxes. Then came a P.S. If my conscience still bothers me, I'll send the rest. He goes on to say, we may feel like it's the infernal revenue service or perhaps the eternal revenue service, but we must pay every penny we owe. End quote. And I'll just share with you um, confessions of a pastor. I, I, honestly, I don't, mind, I don't mind paying my taxes. I hate doing my taxes. Can I get an amen on that? Right, it's 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 the the arduous process that 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 we have to go through, and and all the deductions, and um, you know, gosh, every time you have well, it's a good thing when you have another child, but it's just one more thing to do on your taxes, right? It just everything right snowballs, and it keeps adding up. The more you have, the more you owe, and it's just it's the process. It's a headache. But giving a percentage of what we owe is our God-ordained responsibility. And we shouldn't do it begrudgingly. As a result, I mean, we drive on the nicest roads in the world. We have... Incredible privileges that so many other countries do. There's ways that the church has even served as a result of tax paying dollars so that when homeless people show up, that there's a a, a rescue mission that's supported by government dollars where they can go and get, get help that the church may not even be able to provide. I just wish it was just as easy for us as it was for Israel and their exchange with the Romans just to give one day's wage and be done with it. All right, sign me up for that program. All right, anyone else with me? Yeah, one day's wage, here you go. See you next year. But this just provides evidence of how attached their hearts were to their money. And it also serves as a rebuke to Israel's leaders. The poll tax, if you think about it, was nothing compared to the temple taxes that they were forced to pay on top of the extortion of the prices for the animal sacrifices and the merchant's tables and the exchange rates that had were just awful. And this is just more evidence of their hypocrisy. What would Jesus' response be to their question? It's really quite simple. Pay the tax. Pay the tax. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now had Jesus stopped there, he would have given them exactly what they wanted. But he didn't. Look again at verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. And this brings us to our third and final guiding principle in your outline so that your allegiance to Christ's authority will honor the Lord first as well as any governing authorities. Principle number one, don't practice hypocrisy. Principle number two, give the government your taxes. Principle number three, give God your worship. Render to God the things that are God's. Here Jesus sharply reminds them that they also had an abiding obligation to God. Their duty to God did not eliminate their duty to human government. They had formulated their question in such a way that it was on the assumption that the the two duties were incompatible. But Jesus insisted that there was not necessarily a conflict between the two. The two spheres of duty were distinct, although their duty toward God was their crowning responsibility. Their attempt to trap Jesus didn't hold any water. It was not an either-or. It was a both-and. Who or what has Caesar's image on it? The money. So give to Him what's due. Who or what has God's image on it? We do. We do. We are created in the image of God. And what does God own? Everything. So what should we render to God? Go ahead and say it without reluctance. Without fear, right? And trepidation, right? Because we do. Honestly, if we're honest, with ourselves, there's a reluctance. What do we what should we render to God? Everything. It's not a trick question. But basic logic brings us to this conclusion as believers. And allow me just to share just a couple of verses so that we can apply this practically. And give our worship and lives of obedience to God. And I think you you'll recognize in fairness to to the preacher, and in and and fairness just to, to everyone, when we talk about giving everything to God, the sky is the limit. Right? The sky is the limit here. I mean, we we couldn't cover it in this sermon or the end of this sermon. We certainly couldn't cover it in a dozen sermons. Well, let me just give you some big ticket Items to hang your hat on. Proverbs 2326, my new favorite proverb. Thank you, treasure of scripture scripture knowledge, led me to this proverb in my study, and I saw it and I was just like, Oh, so good. Proverbs 2326. Go underline it, circle it, highlight it. Whatever you gotta do if you have an electronic phone. Okay. But don't lose sight of this. Verse Proverbs 23:26 says, "Give me your heart, my son; give me your heart, my daughter, and let your eyes delight in my ways." That is an extraordinarily beautiful verse. And practically, this truth lets us know that when we give our hearts to God, when we give our allegiance to Him, that it will lead to, what's it say? To evidence of Him working in our lives. We'll we'll see Him working. And it will allow us to delight in His ways. Does God have your heart? Does God have your allegiance, my friend? Completely? entirely. right? The battle is sometimes is' partial, right? If we're, we're just being candid, and there could be someone here today where you've never given your life, and your allegiance to Christ. You've never woken up day after day mindful of the fact that he is Lord of your life and he is the governing authority to which you are going to surrender to all your thoughts, all your attitudes, and all your actions for the day. That is just like, what? Is that what believers are called to do? It is. It is. It is. And we understand that the flesh wages war against the Spirit, that there's always a battle for His allegiance in our life. But, oh dear friend, make sure that you're all in for the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure that you're not allowing your personal authority or the authority of someone else to have any jurisdiction, right? As it relates to your spiritual justification, right? Because we're given other people who do have authority, are used by the Lord. We just saw that in the example of paying taxes. We see that in the example of the parents that God provides for us. We see that in the example of fellow care group leaders and brothers and sisters in Christ that God's called us to, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Make sure that you've called out to God for forgiveness. It's just this week. I wasn't going to share this, but it's a prayer request. My father had uh, hip replacement surgery on his uh, right hip. And everything went fine. It was a routine surgery on Wednesday. And on Thursday morning, he woke up, and they started to do physical therapy, and they work on sitting and standing. It's one of the uh, initial things that they first do after the replacement. And my dad collapsed. He developed a clot on his lung, and his heart went into immediate arrhythmia. And um, I know I mentioned this at the beginning, but um, it was a scary situation. It really was. And all I could think about, really in the end, was my dad dying without having given allegiance to Christ as I was writing the sermon. And the pain that it caused my heart and the uncertainty. It was real. It was real. And so if you can hear the sound of my voice would you just take a moment to make sure just to introspect just to look at your own heart and your own life and to make sure with beyond all shadow of a doubt that your allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone and don't leave family guessing and don't leave other people around you guessing and God was so merciful God was so kind. He allowed him to go through the cardioversion, allowed the the steady shock to restore his beat, his heartbeat, his blood pressure back up, everything stabilized. And he doesn't realize how close, how close he came to not making it. He was supposed to leave the hospital that morning. And had he checked out with a clot, they lived 45 minutes away from the hospital. Had he gone into arrhythmia, could have gone into full cardiac arrest you must be ready. And for those of us who have had the grace extended to us, unveiled in the gospel, and God has imputed his righteousness, and God has instilled his spirit within us, it causes us now, as a result of his work within, to be sensitive to his authority in our lives, his allegiance. And we want to live for him. We want to live for his glory. Will you acknowledge Him in all your ways this week so that He can give you straight paths and guide you through the trials that you might face? Will you give Him your heart and your workplace by committing your work to Him so that He will establish your plans? Proverbs 16.3 Will you give Him your heart in your parenting so that you won't exasperate your children? Will you give Him your heart in your marriage and in your relationships so that you'll be willing to forgive those who are going to sin against you? If so, then your eyes will be able to delight in His ways. They will be able to eat that fruit, that gospel fruit. Will you give Him your purity this week? First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 Familiar verses, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? He has allegiance. You are His. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Will you flee from sexual temptation? Will you fight against fleshly lust with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might? Will you and I abide in His Word so that we can be armed for this battle? Will your heart engage the ministry pillars of Scripture? Will you praise Him with passion? Will you study his word and abide in it? Will you pray with fervency? Will you progress as a disciple? This is God's philosophy of ministry. It's what his word shares. And this is how we can render to God that which belongs to God. Our obedience is our greatest form of worship because it is exactly what God prescribes for us as we present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices, which is our acceptable form of worship. And it starts and ends with renewing our minds with his word so that we are not conformed to this world, but to the true image that we bear from our maker. When considering the second half of Jesus' answer, we see its amazing brilliance. By saying that we are to give God what is God's, Jesus recognized only one God, thus obviating Caesar's claim to divinity. Moreover, because Jesus named God in the second half of the verse, the demands of the ultimate eternal king take precedent over the petty reign of Caesar. Jesus put Caesar in his place. And again, there was nothing that his critics could do about it. Pastor R. Kent Hughes said, This was an astonishing answer to them, just as it was for a brilliant young American lawyer who saw it for the first time. Someone had given him a New Testament. And as he was reading it through, he came to this account, which he read with great interest because he was involved in a similar type of legal dilemma. He said that he could not read it fast enough and that when he saw Jesus' answer, he was so astonished, he actually dropped his Bible, exclaiming, that's the most amazing wisdom. And it is, isn't it? When you read it, this account, You're just blown away when you see the precision and the tact and the wisdom. And God has the wisdom of his word that he wants to provide for us. He wants us to delight in his ways. And may God's amazing wisdom continue to lead us to the three guiding principles in our passage today so that our allegiance to Christ's authority will honor the Lord first as well as any governing authorities. When we refuse to practice hypocrisy, When we give the government our taxes. And most significantly, when we give God all of our worship. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads as a church family, thanking you for the way that you've used your word this morning. We're reminded that it is like a sword, a double-edged sword, It pierces going in and it pierces coming out. And in every single way, it functions as your divine scalpel to continue to sanctify us, to cut away the pieces of our fleshly lives that don't honor you, that expose our hypocrisy, that even reveal the temptation within our hearts as it relates to our relationship with money and materialism even the tendency within our own hearts to hang on to additional tax dollars that we should submit. Oh, Father, we've been challenged. But above it all, you want us to render to what ultimately belongs to you. And it's our obedience. It's our worship to you. They go hand in hand. And so, Father, we pray, and I know just after studying this passage and feeling the weight of the text that is probably true for everybody in the room, that you would be the the Father of mercies and the the God of all comfort and all mercies for us this week as we continue to uh, submit to your authority in our lives, your allegiance. I pray, Father, that you would continue to allow us to be a blessing one to another, that we would truly, see the blessing of giving our heart to you and that we would respond to that proverb and that when you call out to us to give us your hearts that we would and you're asking for us to do this each and every day give me your heart my son give me your heart my daughter thank you father for your pursuing of us Thank you for your preserving work and calling us time again to, to you when our hearts are so quick to wander, when they're so quick to go astray. I pray, Father, that you would continue just to uphold us all by faith and grace. And if there's anyone here today that has not repented of their unbelief, That has not repented of their sin and turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation and that they would commit their lives to you all the days ahead. Thank you, Father, for this time, this study. We pray that it didn't just merely change or alter our thinking. We pray, Father, that it answered the prayer that we prayed at the beginning of the message, that it truly transformed our thinking and thus will transform our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.